You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 17th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. Hello and a very warm welcome to The Briefing. Coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London, I'm Emma Nelson and coming up in the next half hour, can Rishi Sunak solve the impossible conundrum of Brexit and Northern Ireland? The signs look positive, but there remain significant bumps in the road. Also ahead, Portugal closes its golden visa scheme in an effort to solve the country's housing crisis. We'll ask, will stopping foreign buyers from property purchases be enough? Also ahead... We learned that France had declared war on Wakanda and we wish to make it clear that we, for one, humorous news monologue will be rising nobly above any cheap tittering to the effect that France has at last identified an opponent it can beat. That'll be Andrew Muller's take on this week's news cycle and we'll enjoy the latest culture update. Laura Kramer's here to help. Hello, Laura. Hello. I've got an exclusive interview with an international star and also gossip on the entertainer that's had so much plastic surgery his fans don't recognise him. He's a funny colour as well. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Let's begin with a story which is moving as we speak. The Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is in Northern Ireland amid speculation that a deal on the Northern Ireland protocol could be struck as soon as next week. And the signs are hopeful. To find out what we know so far and what could happen, I am joined by the Financial Times political editor George Parker. Welcome back, George. Hello. So this is moving today It's and moving in the right direction, isn't it? But before we look at the progress, could you just briefly, if possible, recap the problem that we're facing here? Well, the problem is that um, Brexit threw up a conundrum, um, which was that Northern Ireland, um, the Northern Ireland question, it was the question about how you kept open the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, um, which obviously we tried to keep open because the problems it caused around the troubles which lasted for 25 years in Northern Ireland. So having an open border on the island of Ireland was crucial. However, Brexit created the problem of having a trade border between the UK and the EU, And to keep open the land border in Ireland, it was agreed by Boris Johnson in his 2019 Brexit deal that instead there'll be checks on goods coming across the Irish Sea from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, which, of course, is part of the UK. And that is a huge problem if you're a Northern Ireland unionist because you see it as putting barriers up within your own country. And that essentially has been the conundrum that people have been trying to address for the last three years. And it has also cost people dear when it comes to business. Yeah, because what it means is that if you're... uh, a, a UK company shipping things across the Irish Sea. Um, you face delays, you face additional bureaucracy and having to put some new labels on, customs declarations, to send things into another part of the UK internal market. So that's the problem that people have been trying to fix. I should say also, by the way, that the Northern Ireland Protocol, the thing we're talking about, does put Northern Ireland in an enviable position because it's the only place in Europe which has one foot in the UK market and another foot in the European single market. So it's a great place for inward investment. But if you're a unionist who believes in the sanctity of the United Kingdom, then you don't like the idea of having a border in the Irish Sea. So reducing those checks on trade between the British mainland and Northern Ireland is what everyone's been trying to resolve over the last three years. And how close are we to a solution? Well, I think we're getting much, much closer. Um, Rishi Sunak, as you mentioned in your introduction, is in Belfast at the moment at the five-star Culloden Hotel. 
overlooking Belfast Lock, and he's meeting the political leaders of all the main parties in Northern Ireland, the most important of which, of course, is the Democratic Unionist Party in this context, because they're the biggest unionist party. They're boycotting the Northern Ireland Assembly at Stormont because they don't like the protocol. And Rishi Sunak's job, it could be a, it could be a very difficult job indeed, is to persuade them that the reforms he's proposing will reduce that trade friction we've just been discussing and convince the unionist population that their interests are not being ignored. Do we know what's in this change? Well, there are, there's, the key thing, um, really, is the fact that they've come up with a technical way of trying to reduce the friction and the bureaucracy you were mentioning earlier that was affecting businesses sending stuff across the Irish Sea. So the idea is you create two lanes at the, at the Irish Sea ports, a green lane, which would be for goods destined for the Northern Ireland market and nowhere else, um, and they will come through from, from ships coming in from, the, from mainland Britain without any checks at all, or certainly very minimal checks. And then you'd have a separate red lane, which would be for goods travelling across the Irish Sea, but intended for sale elsewhere in the European Union, so in the Republic of Ireland or, of course, anywhere else in the European single market. And they would be subject to checks. That's the technical fix, which sounds fairly straightforward. The problem is that because Northern Ireland remains in the EU single market for goods, then the EU says, well, EU law has to apply. And that means judges in Luxembourg on the European Court of Justice have to have a role in settling disputes relating to the single market. Now, if you're a sovereignty purist, whether in Northern Ireland or more pertinently, pertinently a Tory Eurosceptic, you don't like the idea of foreign judges having any say over UK territory. So that constitutional question is really the hardest one, I think, to fix. And it's something which uh, will never go away. Uh, I think the... Um the senior DUP figure has said that a failure to end the imposition of EU law in Northern Ireland will mean that Stormont will not get back together again. And the fact is, is that there is that the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill includes provisions that would remove the oversight of the European Court of Justice in the region, which move, which which does appease the the the, the ERG, the far right um, members of the of Rishi Sunak's government that bit at least. It does, but it's not totally unacceptable to the European Union. And I think basically over the course of these protracted negotiations, it's become obvious to Rishi Sunak and other people who've tried to resolve this that the EU is never going to budge on the idea that if Northern Ireland stays part of the single market, then the rule of EU, the EU laws must apply and the European Court of Justice must have a role. And what you've seen recently is British ministers privately saying things like, People don't, ordinary people in businesses don't really care about the ECJ. It wasn't a big issue before. You know, what they care about is friction on trade. Ordinary people don't talk about the ECJ in Northern Ireland. That's entirely true. So the question is whether <laughs> Boris Johnson's own party prepared to accept this constitutional outrage as they see it and go quietly, or whether, and this is the risk for Rishi Sunak, of course, they, they go on the warpath, uh, with Boris Johnson, their hero from the Brexit years, waiting in the wings. What's interesting here, though, is it, one, it makes you wonder what is driving Rishi Sunak here. Because there is a general feeling that the Conservative Party is running out of road when it comes to electability. And whether Rishi Sunak, in an entirely technocratic way, is saying we actually need to solve a few problems here. That's exactly what he's doing. And it's a really good question. Why is he spending his very scarce political capital on resolving this issue when he could just, I suppose, leave it well alone and let it fester until the election. I think Rishi Sunak sees, as one thing you say, you say is absolutely correct, he sees himself as a problem fixer and he, he's quite attracted to the idea of fixing a problem that's been lying around for several years. But also I think he sees a huge 
possible return on that political capital. Um, to give you some examples, if this is settled, then it will transform relations between the UK and the EU. Um, it will see the EU, I'm certain, uh, restore Britain to its place in the so-called Horizon Science Collaboration Programme, which is worth about 95 billion euros. So that's a, an easy, quick win. But there are other things like energy cooperation, defence cooperation, um, which I think could flow from it. And, of course, the fact that the Americans will put, put their blessing on this deal. And you can imagine that Joe Kennedy, the scion of the Kennedy family, who's been appointed by Joe Biden as a business representative in Northern Ireland, he'll be trying to bring some inward investment into Northern Ireland as well off the back of it. So they'll try to create a very warm international glow around this deal when it's presented, as I expect, next week. Uh, the question is, how does Boris Johnson's party react? Sorry, Rishi, <laughs> Rishi Sunak's party react. Easy mistake to make. George Parker, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. The time here in London is 12.09. You with a briefing with me, Emma Nelson. A quick summary now from Marcus Hippie with the day's headlines. Thanks, Emma. The Pentagon's top China official, Michael Chase, has arrived in Taiwan for a visit that could exacerbate tension between Beijing and Washington. China and the United States are involved in a bitter dispute over the US military's shooting down of what it called a Chinese spy balloon earlier this month. Chase would be the most senior US defense official to visit the island since 2019. A 24-hour strike at German airports is set to affect almost 300,000 passengers as unionised workers press their demand for high wages. Around 295,000 passengers are affected by the cancellation of over 2,300 flights at seven airports, including Frankfurt, Hamburg and Munich. And Portugal has announced a hefty package of measures to tackle the housing crisis, including the end of its controversial golden visa scheme and a ban on new licences for Airbnbs. Rents and house prices have skyrocketed in Portugal, which is among the poorest countries in Western Europe. We'll be hearing more about this later in the show. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you, Marcus. Well, we can hear about it right now, actually. Just to recap, Portugal is to end its so-called golden visa investment scheme for foreign nationals, and it's also banning new licences for Airbnbs. It's part of a whole package of ideas trying to solve the country's rather dire housing crisis. Well, joining me to discuss this is Monocle's Lisbon correspondent, Gaia Lux. Good afternoon, Gaia. Hi, good afternoon, Emma. Nice to speak to you. Good to have you with us. Just explain to us what are, or rather were, golden visas. So yeah, just just first of all, Emma, I think it's important to highlight that this this housing package is quite wide ranging. So it's it comes up with 900 million euros in the forms of all sorts of incentives. So aid to poor families, rental aid for loans, um, support for landlords and putting their houses on on rental long term. As, as well as measures to curtail speculation, such as the end of the golden visa and the end of the short-term rentals. Um, so the golden visas, you could say the golden, the end of the golden visas is quite symbolic, more than actually perhaps the most important element of the package. Um, but the golden visa scheme was a program introduced back in 2012, so over a decade ago now, at the height of the of the crisis here in Portugal whereby foreign nationals could acquire a passport and citizenship in return for investments in the country, including real estate. So if you'd acquire property over 500,000 euros, um, you get the right to live in Portugal for five years, after which you can apply for permanent residence and then a passport for the EU. Um, so it's been controversial from the start, as you can imagine, because of you know all the other EU member states that have wondered if that's the right way um, to, to control their borders. 
Um, it's been controversial for reasons of, of, you know, in Brazil, we had the car wash operation where lots of Brazilian nationals were being investigated and they and they entered the scheme to sort of flee um, persecution, but also most obviously because it was contributing to the speculation. Um, just um, one, just looking though at the, the the fact that this is one element of a of a wider issue, which is the housing crisis. But how much effect was the issuing of golden visas actually having on house prices and the availability of housing in Portugal? Because from the outside, it looks as if it might be just quite a quite a niche operation. It is niche compared, if you compare it to, to how many houses are up for short-term rental, especially in Lisbon, I mean, golden visas are, are niche. It's, it's about 10,000 golden visas were granted um, for property ba- buyers in the last 12 years. Um, that's mainly to Chinese residents, then Brazilians and U.S. residents. Um, but I think it's symbolic in terms that it, it, it puts, I think the government was increasingly getting into a tough spot where it was having to answer hard questions. Whilst on the one side, there was this very, very urgent and dire housing crisis. And on the other side, it was letting foreign owners just buy property and buy citizenship in. So I think it's 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 more of a symbolic measure. I think there are other measures in that package that will tackle the housing crisis more more heads on. Tell us what they might be, because given the fact that the the Prime Minister Antonio Costa has said that the housing crisis is now affecting everybody, not just just the the most vulnerable. And, and placing this in a bit of context, you, there's a is it more than half of Portuguese workers earn less than a, a thousand euros every month? Yes, I think that that's the bottom line of the problem. It's, you know, there's in one sense, there's this narrative of Portugal being this amazing place for foreigners to come to. Um, And it's not just, you know, measures like the golden visa. There are all sorts of incentives. There's a digital nomad visa that's just been introduced last October. Um, And there's this narrative that it's this great place for foreigners to come um, to do tourism or to live. Um, And then on the other hand, it's 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 becoming untenable for for locals to live in in cities like lisbon um this is something that i've been here for five years i've noticed becoming increasingly a problem i mean there's not one lunch or bar discussion that doesn't end on the problem of the housing crisis you know people are moving away people are being evicted um and and that's because you know in essence yes this is a great country but it's still one of the poorest countries in western europe it's you know minimum wages are still around 700 euros 740 euros which is very low for the property prices we're talking about especially in the big cities like porto and lisbon so it's it's something that has been i mean a lot of critics will say that this is sort of not too little not too little because it's a big package but definitely too late um this is something that there have been numerous studies on how this is impacting um the quality of life of the residents and that you know added on to the 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 housing, uh, sorry, the cost of living crisis we see in everywhere in Europe, it's it's becoming a very dire situation, as you said in the beginning. Gaia Lutz, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Lisbon. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. We're live on Monocle 24. Let's get the latest business headlines now. Bloomberg's Ewan Potts joins me once again on the line. Good afternoon, Ewan. Hi, Emma. Good to speak to you. Good news on gas prices, natural gas prices. Yeah, European natural gas futures have dropped below 50 euros a megawatt hour for the first time in almost 
18 months. That takes us back to summer 2021. I'm looking at a nice uh, chart of this. Not very good for the radio, I appreciate. But uh, you can see just after the invasion of uh, Ukraine back uh, almost a year ago, a year ago next week, prices spiked above 200 euros a megawatt hour and then actually the situation got a lot worse this summer uh, last summer rather when uh, putin uh, cut off the gas uh, prices spiked above 300 euros a megawatt hour so we're down about 80 percent uh, from that uh, point a uh, lot of last uh, summer a few things have really uh, helped out. We've had a relatively mild uh, weather over the course of the last few months in Europe. Uh, we've had plenty of efforts to reduce energy consumption and we've had strong inflows of liquefied natural gas coming from the US uh, and Qatar in particular. So uh, high prices in Europe have really drawn gas in from the rest of the world and that has helped to keep the price down. The interesting thing is looking forward as to whether prices are going to go much lower. And analysts are questioning uh, whether 50 euros may be about as low as we get. Uh, analysts at uh, Bloomberg NEF who look at these things say that prices have now fallen to the level where it actually makes sense to switch uh, some from some of the uh, most least some some of the least efficient coal plants to some of the most efficient gas plants. So gas is now becoming competitive with coal again. Uh, over the course of this winter, we've been burning much more coal in Europe because gas has been so expensive. So that is good news uh, for carbon emissions, but it does mean that the gas price perhaps won't fall. Uh, much lower than where we are now. Indeed, because I mean, we're talking about you know, much wider availability, so the cost is lower, so that in theory should be passed on to the customer. But what you have just said suspects makes me think otherwise. Well, there's always a bit of a delay, of course, because the way that retail prices are set uh, is is complicated and uh, companies uh, tend to uh, buy ahead. And, of course, the picture is also very much uh, blurred in Europe because we've had lots and lots of subsidies, huge amounts of money. The European, the uh, British government has been spending about £10 billion a month subsidising uh, energy uh, prices for consumers and for businesses. Uh, that is a picture which is uh, similar in many European countries. Uh, so the, 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 price, the retail price... Uh, doesn't bear much relation to the current wholesale price. But this will feed through, and later this year you will start to see your bills come down. Thanks for that. Uh, Ewan, let's move to China. Um, A star investment banker has vanished. Tell us more. Yeah, his knack for closing complicated deals and spotting rising tech stars uh, made him one of China's most influential financiers. So now the uh, sudden disappearance of Bao Fan, linked to a Chinese government investigation, is starting to send chills through the country's business elite. Now, there's no indication so far that the boss of China Renaissance has become the target of regulators, but uh, the investment bank said yesterday that it has lost contact with its founder and boss, uh, and sources tell us that the banker's family has been told he is assisting an investigation. Now, that phrase pretty concerning. Increasingly in China, a sudden, suddenly absent boss has come to signal uh, a crackdown uh, or an investigation by authorities. Uh, in many cases, uh, a person is said to be assisting uh, with uh, a probe. Uh, so this is uh, pretty troubling uh, for investors. And uh, I think it's not just concerning for this particular company. Uh, it shares down uh, 50% at one point in Hong Kong trading. At the end of the day, down uh, 28%. But it's uh, speaks uh, more widely to uh, the, the Chinese government's attitudes towards business. And, of course, we saw a big unwinding last year of its uh, massive crackdown on the uh, tech sector, which has been a real positive for investors in China. But this is uh, a new development. Uh, I think we'll have to sort of watch watch where this leads to. Ewan Potts, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're with The Briefing. The Concierge from Monocle 
brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations, new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. Culture Roundup is on the way, but first let's get an unusual instalment of news seen through the eyes of Monocle's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that we are not alone. Well, possibly. We learned following last week's hilarity involving a US Air Force F-22 and a Chinese balloon, and actually let's have that sound effect of a sidewinder missile deflating a dirigible with an anticlimactic pop again. I know you worked hard on it. That's the one. We learned of three further Zeppelin incursions into the airspace of the North American continent, and we learned that one very senior US Air Force officer does not understand the media, the online information ecosystem, or people in general. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, he said. For we learned that whether out of diligent fealty to the known facts or bleak amusement at the situation in which he found himself, General Glenn Van Herc, head of North American Aerospace Defense Command, was not about to entirely discount the possibility that humankind was under assault from the vanguard of a Martian landing force. Because you still haven't been able to tell us what these things are that we are shooting out of the sky, that raises the question, have you ruled out aliens or extraterrestrials, and if so, why? Thanks for the question, Colleen. I'll let the intel community and the uh, counterintelligence community figure that out. I haven't ruled out anything uh, at this point. We continue to assess uh, every threat or potential threat unknown that approaches North America with an attempt to identify it. And we learned that both professional and social media were absolutely going to respond to this punctiliously professional no comment with exactly the calm, rational and detached perspective which might have been expected. Which, we learned, gave White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre yet further opportunity to demonstrate the overlap between her job and that of a weary schoolteacher lumbered with a class of extremely dim children. Before I turn it over to the Admiral, I just wanted to make sure we address this from the White House. I know there have been questions and, and concerns about this, but there is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity. wanted to make sure that the American people knew that, all of you knew that, uh, and it was important for us to say that from here because we've been hearing a lot about it. 
We learned, however, that if these three new aircraft were the first wave of an invasion by alien marauders, then boy, had they picked the wrong planet to mess with. We learned that the USAF's top guns had blasted them from the skies, apparently ending this live-action remake of Orson Welles' 1938 radio production of War of the Worlds, until the next time America finds something to freak all the way out about, which on form has probably already happened by the time you hear this. Paul, flag of truce. Those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. Anyway. Sticking with this week's apparent theme of Western militaries overreacting somewhat to arguably imaginary threats, we learned that France had declared war on Wakanda, and we wish to make it clear that we, for one, humorous news monologue will be rising nobly above any cheap tittering to the effect that France has at last identified an opponent it can beat. We learned that France's Minister for Defence and current title holder of world's most French name, Sébastien Lecornu, had found time in what might be hoped would be a busier schedule to get upset with a scene from Black Panther Wakanda Forever, in which a gaggle of captured mercenaries dressed in what does resemble French camouflage, maybe a bit if you're absolutely determined to see a resemblance in order to get wound up about it, are given an earful by Queen Ramonda in front of the UN. Further attempts on our resources will be considered an act of aggression and met with a much steeper response. We learned that Monsieur Leconnu had confined his umbrage to Twitter, which presents something of a challenge to an audio medium such as ours, so let's have another run out for that chorus of Gallic indignation we made on a slow afternoon a couple of years back. That is, on reflection, arguably borderline, but its reappearance does emphasise how terrifically important it is that all public officials also record their fat-headed contributions to inane controversies about total non-issues, so we have something to work with. Can I get some general muttered agreement? Yeah. I know right. Elsewhere, we learned and we believe that this cannot be overemphasised, that when purchasing trains, it is of crucial importance to first undertake a rigorous measuring of one's tunnels. This is not a euphemism, grow up. We learned that Spain had learned this the hard way, belting out 258 million euros on 31 new passenger trains for Asturias and Cantabria, which will not, it turns out, fit into the region's mountain passes. We must have a train crash clip somewhere. That'll do. And we learned of the theft of Easter eggs. Right, you've seen where this is going. Let's just get through this. We learned specifically that 200,000 Cadbury's cream eggs had been poached from an industrial estate in Telford, but we swiftly learned that, yes, police had been taken off the beat and scrambled. Detectives had cracked the case and that the oaf who hatched the plan had been whisked to prison and that because he possessed an extensive prior record he can, yes, correctly claim to have been 
foiled again. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks to Andrew Muller for that. If you enjoyed it, well, next Friday from 7am on The Globalist, Andrew Muller will be bringing us a fresh instalment of what we learned. The time here in London is 12.28. It is time to get a little bit of culture news. And I'm delighted to say that Monocle's Laura Kramer is in the studio. Hello, Laura. Hi, Emma. Good to have you with us. So we have the BAFTAs this weekend. For those of us who aren't glued to our sets here in the United Kingdom, what are the BAFTAs? The BAFTAs are like the UK version of the Oscars. They're also a really good indicator for who will win the Oscars because so many of the same people are voting in in, uh, both awards ceremonies. So they're kind of a really big deal. This year's ceremony will be hosted by Richard E. Grant and it'll be quite starry, actually. It's very exciting. Catherine Zeta-Jones, Lily James will be presenting. Also, nominees include, you know, the likes of Brendan Fraser, Colin Farrell, Kate Blanchett, Michelle Yeoh. So it's really exciting, big mix. One person we won't be expecting, Mm. Tom Cruise. Why? Because he is a little bit upset that mm, Tom uh, Top Gun Maverick did not get nominated for Best Film. It is nominated for four different categories, but they're like technical categories. So he's decided, you're snubbing me, I'm snubbing you. This is, is, people can get so angry that they're not not going to turn up to what is effectively a really nice evening to celebrate your movie because your movie isn't isn't nominated. Well, it is though. It's just not in the best category. It's also going to be quite a royal event. There's going to be a tribute to the Queen that's introduced by um, Helen Mirren, who famously won an Oscar for playing her. And also Kate and William will make their debut as Prince and Princess of Wales, returning to the ceremony after two years of not attending. All right. Your card's marked, Mr. Cruz. Um, let's <laughs> move on. Uh, there's a television series called Liaison. The star of it is Vincent Cassel. Um, uh, you've done an interview with him, haven't you? I have. It's an exclusive Monocle 24 interview. I will play the full thing on The Globalist next week. But I was allowed by Vincent's people to play a little <laughs> teaser. I specially asked for this just for Monocle 24. So the series is like this high-stakes thriller, espionage type thing, and he's a very cool, mysterious kind of man for hire to kill people in it. And he speaks four languages in it, French, English, Arabic, and Russian. Now, he actually speaks all these, and he speaks Portuguese as well. So I I, I think I kind of triggered him a little, because I asked him, okay. <laughs> I asked him was it... F- one, of all the people, I mean, Vincent <laughs> Cassel has played some pretty tough characters, yeah. starting from La Haine, like a million years ago, and you triggered Vincent Cassel. Slightly, just because I asked him, isn't it fun? to do this and he said it's just natural and everybody should i've always been attracted to traveling around the world learning languages this is something that uh, from my point of view you have to do how many americans or even brits that i've met in paris and they've been here for like 15 years and they still don't speak french i don't get it how do you do that to understand the culture to understand how things work in a country you need to get into it and to get into it, you have to pick up the slang, literally. I sort of get his point a little bit in order to... You need the basics. You need to, to eat, you need to get around, and you need a roof over your head. Um, how, did he go on any further about the fact that there should be an obligatory language test? Because not all of us are blessed with a language brain. He, You know, he was actually very nice about it. and it made, I wondered if the American comment was aimed at me, but I, I said, Vincent, I speak two languages. It's okay, but yes, I should speak more. You're in the Vincent Cassel <laughs> popularity language club um finally let's move on to uh, a reworking i mean look stars famous people people in the in the public eye 
are known, characters in the public eye, are known occasionally to have a little bit of stuff done in order to maintain a fresh look for the outside world. Now, this has happened to... There's been a rather radical change to one of the more popular characters out of out of Hollywood. Just explain a little bit more. Absolutely. And I, I think we also need to take into account with the cameras being so good now. They mm. pick up all your flaws. Oh, yes. Well, there is a... Uh, one internationally famous celebrity, um, Barney the Purple Dinosaur, right, um, <laughs> is is getting a makeover. Now, we don't know Barney's real age because that's very Hollywood. But we do know that his ancestors, the T-Rexes, were around about 60 so million years ago. So you can imagine... You need a few things done. Up until now, he's looked pretty good. I mean, you can, you know, to climb into a Barney costume is, well... Dare I say it? I, I must scrap what I've just said because obviously Barney I, exists in his own right, surely. Um, but yeah, so he's a good 60 million years old. I mean, for starters, he's purple, so that might have something to do with it. But he's now radically changed. Radically changed. He looks slimmer. It looks like he's had his teeth whitened. Um, his eyes are bigger. And and also, the big thing is the Guardian is accusing Barney of having a, a nose job. Now, when I look at old photos of Barney, he doesn't have nostrils. And so I do wonder if the nose job was to solve some sleep apnea issue. But <laughs> everything else definitely looks cosmetic. I think you've been... Um dare I say, over Barneying it. Laura Kramer, thank you so much. And if you are interested, then uh, Barney's new look is easily Googleable. He's turned into a cartoon, hasn't he? He's gone rather two-dimensional. Uh, the reactions across the world are marvellous to watch. Uh, Laura, thank you so much indeed for that. That's all we have time for today's edition of The Briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and to producers Paige Reynolds, our researchers Andre Nikolai Parminchian, and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing's back on Monday at the same time, but for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye Thank you very much for listening. Have a great weekend.